0: to crashing the war party, where me and my co-host Barbara and Daniel are doing our best to throw stink bombs into the status quo foreign policy conversation. We've had a lot of help in the last two months since we launched our new show from all sorts of folks trying to agitate and instigate for a new kind of thinking in Washington. Our guest today, Dan Grazier, has been a real skunk in the garden party in the military industrial complex, and we look forward to picking his brain on that. But before we get to Dan, let's talk a little bit about what's been going on with NATO these days. A couple weeks ago, President Biden met with alliance members and embraced the organization as a security hedge against China and Russia, calling China a, quote, challenge to the, quote, rules-based order, end quote. Russia, is, according to Biden, is a threat to NATO itself. Unlike his predecessor, whom he disavowed as a fake populist in his remarks, Biden was reaffirming in NATO's mission mission and appeared on board with members to expand that mission to accommodate the 21st century reality that reality of course is that the Soviet Union is gone and it needs new threats in order to exist so let's talk about that mm-hmm. Dan I you know I know you've been watching this fairly closely and uh, you had made some note offline uh. In regard to my colleague Stephen Wertheim's recent op-ed in the New York Times, in which he basically calls for a rethinking of NATO, uh, I think the, the the title of that piece was something like "Sorry, liberals, but you really shouldn't love NATO," and he got a lot of backlash for that. Could you talk a little bit about that? Uh, sure. So uh, Stephen uh, has, I mean,
1: he's emerged as one of the leading advocates of restraint uh, in the u.s today uh, and, and he's taken his criticism uh, of our policy of, of militarized domination uh, to uh, a critique of NATO and it's it's been very interesting to see uh, how furiously people have been pushing back on it because his his op-ed is, itself is not necessarily that radical he, I don't think he explicitly calls for the alliance to be dismantled I don't think he even says that the US should leave it uh, but he is saying that we need to take a, a more critical view of it and we need and especially people on the left need to take a more critical view of it because uh, he opens it by talking about how Democrats have rallied uh, around NATO uh, kind of in an anti-trump backlash because Trump was at least on the face of it more critical of the alliance than most presidents usually are uh, in fact we know that Trump's actual policies are not that big of a break from his predecessors uh, in a almost every important respect uh, US policy towards NATO remained unchanged uh, but because he was Trump was perceived to be this uh, enemy of the alliance or this this person undermining the alliance the Democrats have rallied around it uh, to a greater extent than they had before uh, and so it's it's been interesting uh, to see the the backlash because uh, all, all that Stephen is really saying is that NATO is a military alliance. You shouldn't venerate military alliances, especially if you're a progressive. Uh, And especially when this is a military alliance that has outlived its usefulness, it's now moved into these other out-of-area expeditions that don't have anything to do with the collective defense of Europe. And so he cites their involvement in Afghanistan. He cites their involvement uh, in the Libyan war. uh, And and, and to, to make the point that the alliance isn't actually keeping the peace, it's, it's getting involved in wars of choice. Uh, if it were simply a defensive alliance, I think he would have a, a lot fewer problems with it. Uh, and, and the same would go for me, I think. If NATO had remained defensive as it was during the Cold War, uh, there would be much less criticism of it. Uh, what we have today, uh, unfortunately, is an alliance that keeps casting about for a purpose, because it, in their hearts, they know that Russia isn't really that serious of a threat. And so they keep trying to reinvent themselves, first as a counterterrorism operation after 9-11, and then they get into the regime change business with Libya in the Arab Spring, and now they're trying to reinvent themselves again as an anti-China force, which just by looking at the map is ridiculous. Uh, Why we have the German Navy sending ships to patrol the South China Sea when their concern should be with the defense of Europe, uh, it, it just doesn't make any sense.
0: Yeah, I find it pretty pathetic that the reason why we can't have a healthy debate about the legitimacy of NATO's future mission uh, is because of politics. And as you mentioned, the Democrats are now all uh, gathering the wagons around NATO because Trump had actually spent four years criticizing NATO. Um, but can we not just like look at NATO and reassess its mission uh, like adults or does everything have to be put through a political frame? And I blame the right and the Republicans for doing the same thing. You know, they support wars when their guy is in office and then they criticize um, wars and unconstitutional military actions when the other guy is in the White House. And this goes on forever, and in the meantime, as you say, you have a NATO that has has stretched its mission to places uh, far, far beyond uh, the its you know anti-communist, anti-Soviet mandate, and now it's searching for new missions. And that new mission is in China. Uh, Barb, what do you what do you make of this? What do you make of their this new um, focus on on China as the the world bugaboo?
2: And I I think I agree with what you guys are saying. I also think it's kind of funny because the Ukraine wants to join as well. Ukraine wants to join. I mean, the more countries that join, the less effective NATO is, which I guess is an argument against NATO itself. Um, the more countries that are in there, the less effective it is as an institution, the less it really means. Anyway, it just becomes another UN, and how effective is the UN? We never debate that either, but what does the UN Security Council really do that can't be—I mean, do we need all these—what do these peacekeeping forces actually accomplish, or what do these large international governing bodies do? If you go back and look at the history of what they were supposed to do versus what they've actually accomplished, I mean, let's not even get into the UN peacekeeping forces, or should we get into that? I mean, that's actually— something we should talk about at some point, I think, because it's atrocious. They've actually committed war crimes in some some of the poor countries that they have, quote-unquote, kept the peace in. They've done some horrible, horrible crimes, and it's really just swept under the rug. I mean, I don't understand why we don't debate, a little, have a little healthy debate about what is the point of this at this point anymore. I mean, it reminds me of a little bit there's a joke in the British political comedy, Yes, Prime Minister, about the British always join into these little, into the alliances so that they can break them up from the inside. Sometimes that feels like what the whole point of these larger international institutions is.
0: Yeah, and you know, you make a great point about the enlargement of the alliance. Um, you know, it seems like we're right on the cusp, or not on the cusp, but like we're on a pathway of some sort of opening up NATO to Ukraine. Uh, Dan, you want to talk a little bit about this oddball tweet that uh, President uh, President Zelensky put out, who's the um, Ukrainian president, yesterday about. The NATO members formally accepting its uh, its it into membership.
1: Right. So, yeah. So the the Ukrainian president has been very uh, vocal about uh, insisting that Ukraine's membership be expedited. That NATO give them a firm answer one way or the other. And and I'm I'm actually sympathetic to them getting a clear answer one way or the other, with the understanding that the answer is going to be no. Uh, but the, the alliance itself keeps kicking the can down the road. And so at the Brussels summit, they affirmed the decision that was made at Bucharest back in 2008, that eventually Ukraine and Georgia will be allowed to join, uh, you know, depending on whether what reforms they make in their own countries. Uh, and this is a way for them to sort of placate Ukraine, or at least that's their attempt to placate Ukraine, to say, yes, you're still theoretically uh, – Going to join, uh, but it's it's very theoretical, and so Zelensky keeps trying to turn these statements of the status quo into big news. And so, with his tweet, he tried to to trick people into saying that the the NATO communiqué had actually endorsed Ukraine's membership, uh, when when really nothing had changed. There is no membership action plan in the works, and I think Biden himself said it remains to be seen whether that will ever happen. And, and Biden is one of the biggest boosters of Ukraine's membership in the alliance. So if he's hedging on this, uh, I think that gives you a good indication of where things really stand. Uh, and so Zelensky has gone out way on a li- way out on a limb uh, on this stuff to to try to, I guess, shame the alliance or or make Biden feel bad about it, so that he'll do something uh, dramatic to to give Zelensky a win. But it's just not happening. And, and Zelensky is, I think, uh, just really embarrassing himself in the process.
2: You kind of got to feel sorry for them because it's as if, I mean, can you blame them for taking us at our word? How many times do we make these promises and how many times do we fail to keep them? Right? Uh,
1: absolutely. No, it's, it's really unfair of what they did in 2008 because it was really the worst of both worlds where they, they sent up this... Uh, flair saying, yes, you'll get to join NATO, which freaked out the Russians enough uh, that ended up leading to the war in 2008. Uh, And and it also contributed to the later crisis with Ukraine. Uh, So Ukraine and Georgia ended up materially losing as a result of this declaration. They they didn't get anything out of it. uh, And we, we demonstrated that we're not actually willing to fight for them. Uh, so they they basically got hung out to dry, and, and that is really a shame. It's why NATO ought to have said nothing at all uh, back then, and and they ought to just close the door and and do them a favor and stop stringing them along.
2: Yeah, and he, I think Zelensky is a smart enough guy, maybe to be catching on to the fact that, you know, it. I mean, naming and shaming us, maybe I I don't know if it's a smart way to go. There's, I'm not, and I'm not sure that I, it means a whole ton to us to be shamed by the Ukraine. Um, and I'm not sure what that will do to, for instance, other European partners like France or, you know, the other their other um, allies. I'm not sure, but it's not. I don't think that the U.S. is going to change its course because the Ukraine um, president is is saying is tweeting. Anything? I mean, did it even make a front page here anywhere? I don't think so.
0: There was a flurry of activity on Twitter yesterday because people were actually <laughs> watching, you know, uh, the news headlines yesterday to kind of gauge on, on where that whole idea of enlargement was going. And so when Zelensky tweeted that, there were, you know, reporters snapping into action actually retweeting it, which I didn't retweet it. Um, I just, you know, but there were, there was a ton of, um, you know, uh, conversation going on behind the scenes and in our, you know, signal at work, you know, going, what, what, what did did he say? What's going on? Biden went on a press conference right after and said nothing about it so um but he was also quite late for the press conference so there was a lot of speculation and I have to you know I know that we we recorded this and you know so once you get this recording um it'll be about a week late so forgive us if if any news is dropped in between when we recorded this episode and uh when we finally publish it and and put it out there, but yeah, there was a lot of activity about about the idea of, of of NATO enlargement, and you know, then you have the whole the whole issue of Turkey. You know, some people are like, "Why is Turkey a NATO member uh, when yeah. we can't seem to get it together with these guys?" One minute we're on one side of a conflict with each other, the next minute we're on opposing sides. Uh, Erdogan is acting very authoritarian uh, and getting worse as it seems as he kind of wants to sort of, um, you know, project his power further and further out. You know, Dan, does the the whole uh, Turkey membership sort of um, give life to this sort of question as to whether it has any real mission uh, any longer as a, a North American alliance or North Atlantic alliance?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it does raise questions because a lot of the clashes that Turkey gets into in, in these days involves being on opposing sides with other members of the alliance. Uh, they're they're not necessarily that uh, opposed to Russia. And of course, they came under sanctions because they were willing to buy uh, military hardware from the Russians over our objections. Uh, so, They've become much more of an independent actor, uh, which is not a problem in and of itself, but it does raise the question right. of how you can have a working alliance when you have uh, sort of free agents going off and, and starting their own wars uh, or carrying out their own wars uh, without so much as a heads up to anybody else. Um, it's, it's a real problem. And I, I, it does show how dated the alliance is, I think, because having Turkey as a member during the Cold War made perfect sense. It was, it was strategically very useful to have the country that controls the Straits uh, in the alliance. But today, uh, why do we need it? And indeed, why does the alliance need to exist?
3: to bring to you Dan Graser from Pogo. He's a former Marine Corps captain. He served tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan during the War on Terror. His various assignments in uniform included tours with the 2nd Tank Battalion in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, and the 1st Tank Battalion in 29 Palms, California. Prior to his time in the Marine Corps, he worked as a television journalist in Maryland and Missouri. He's covered nearly every type of story imaginable from breaking news to long form investigative pieces. He's written extensively and lectured on matters of military reform and maneuver warfare. His work has appeared in the Marine Corps Gazette, Fire's Bulletin and Small Wars Journal. He makes an average of hundred appearances a year in a variety of media outlets discussing matters of military reform to include appearances on the Bill Press Show, Fox News, and in the Washington Times. He is a 2000 graduate of Virginia Commonwealth University, a 2012 graduate of the Marine Corps Expeditionary Warfare School, and 2019 graduate of Norwich University with a Master's of Arts in Military History. So we're so excited to have you with us today.
4: Hey, Barbara, it's great to be here.
3: So first I'd like to ask you a question about the recent threat inflation we've been seeing with regards to China and how that's driving Pentagon spending. Could you talk a little bit about that?
4: Sure. It's it's very difficult on, on any given day to look at any of the national security trade presses without seeing some kind of dire story about the imminent military threat that China poses to the United States. And I'm not suggesting that that China does not present a strategic competitor to the United States. Uh, but I think the 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 military threat of posed by China has been has been inflated. and And it's for for good reason, too, from a certain a certain point of view. Uh, we have experienced very high levels of Pentagon spending since September 11th and uh, and during the during the war it was really easy to justify those really high high Pentagon budgets but as we started pulling back from those wars starting around 2011 2012, and, you know, combined with, with sequestration, Pentagon on spending levels came down. And that was very distressing for the defense industry and for the services because they had made plans starting back in 2001. Because in, 2000, in October 2001, you had programs like the F-35 and the littoral combat ship that were launched. And then they were quickly followed by big ticket programs like the Ford Aircraft Carrier. So those programs began development in the early 2000s, and then the bill really started coming due uh, right as Pentagon budget levels came down uh, at the at the end of the war. And so now that those programs are starting to to move from development to procurement the Pentagon and the services really need high Pentagon, high budget levels in order to continue through with that procurement. And so the, the best way to coax ever larger spending levels for the Pentagon is to have an imminent military threat to justify those. So, you know, we saw that in, in the early 1980s, uh, you know, after after Vietnam and Pentagon... Budget levels came down, then the Cold War ramped up. And we had the big uh, the big budgets during the Reagan years uh, to compete in, you know, at the end of the the first Cold War uh, with the Soviet Union, which is really great at justifying those high high Pentagon budgets. And now we're seeing the same thing. you know the the war on terror, uh, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan ramped down. Pentagon spending levels go down and so now we need a new threat in order to coax them back up to pay those bills that were that were established back in the early 2000s.
3: Is there any part of the spending with regards to China that you think is justified? The defense well, spending that is?
4: Uh, sure, uh, I, again, I don't mean to suggest that that China does not is not a competitor, and uh, you know, as the only other country right now that that kind of approaches that superpower status, uh, it, it's important that we're prepared, particularly that we can deter any kind of military aggression from China. And uh, you know because we're both nuclear powers, you know we have those we have those arsenals that do a pretty good job of of deterring that kind of conflict, which is why the Cold War, thank God, did not go hot and uh, and and hopefully our nuclear deterrent will also prevent the second Cold War with China from going hot. So uh, a certain level of spending to maintain that deterrent level is very appropriate. But I think that a lot of the spending that we're we're doing now in order to create a military force to project military power forward, particularly across the pacific, I think is uh is is misguided because it's you know the 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 kind of war for which. Weapons like the F thirty five and uh, you know the the Ford class carrier and and all those other kind of offensive minded weapons uh, is is really unlikely, which is a good thing and and so I I certainly question uh, some of that spending uh, to say you know nothing of uh, the 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 design of a lot of these weapons that we're that we're talking about now.
3: So, would you say then? Because we spend about ten times, I think, what China we outspend them about ten to one, I think, on military spending. So you'd say maybe it's more a question of what we're spending it on rather than that we need to spend more. Is that is that an accurate
4: right. statement? Right. Well, you know, if you if you look at a lot of the the kind of military spending that China is making right now. Uh, a lot of it is defensive minded. You know you talk about the uh, the a two a d systems, you know to prevent the United states from or any any country, but really the United States from approach approaching the Chinese mainland. That's defensive minded. Like that kind of those those kind of systems don't help you project power forward to, let's say, the United States. Uh, and, but we're, we're spending, you know, we're spending a fortune to build weapons, to try to penetrate that, that defense network, uh, which is a much, much more expensive prospect. You know, it's, it's always easier to defend than it is to project power forward. And so I, I I do question a lot of that spending. I think we would do a lot better to, um, um, maybe have a more defensive mindset ourselves and uh, and and focus more on on, again, deterring any kind of military aggression and certainly to protect the the coast of the United States.
3: Okay, I know you've written a lot about the f thirty five but I'm gonna let my co-host take it from here because uh, we have a little minute amount of time. So um,
0: <laughs> go ahead, uh, Kelly or Daniel, whoever would like to go next. <laughs> Well, I actually I I kind of wanted to 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 continue the thread that we're on. And I'm I'm wondering, Dan, you know, since that you're sort of steeped in this on a daily basis, do you believe that this is the influence of the defense industry in terms of actually uh crafting the strategy as opposed to there being a strategy and then built and then budgets are built around it. In other words, we're hearing, you know, from our generals that this and admirals that this is the way to that we need to go, but how much are they being influenced by special interests on, on Capitol Hill to do this um, more power projecting strategy, as opposed to the defensive one that you um, think might be more appropriate?
4: Well, uh, the there, there's certainly plenty of uh, plenty of evidence to suggest that that part of that this is partially defense industry generated. So if you look at at some of the think tank pieces that come out and and when you understand the funding of a lot of the, a lot of the think tanks, uh, then it really uh, that that picture kind of becomes clearer. Uh, I I certainly doubt that we're ever going to find you know the the smoking gun memorandum from the executives of the big defense contractors saying. That hey, we need to really ramp up the the China threat in order to uh, in order to increase our revenue. Uh, it, but it, like these these kind of threat pieces kind of take on a, a life of their own. You know, it, it seems like you have you know a couple people that start that start talking about this one threat, and then there's kind of a bandwagon effect, and you start seeing more and more you know more and more pieces coming out saying that. China is a big threat, and and people kind of pile on to it because that's the that's the topic of the day in Washington.
0: Right, exactly. Are you surprised that the 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 Biden administration, the incoming administration, hasn't been more immune to this powerful influence, or did you pretty much assume that you know um, whether it's a D or an R behind their name, they're pretty much uh, susceptible to oh. this?
4: yeah, I was not surprised at all because this is uh, uh, this is one area. this is the one area in Washington where there is complete total bipartisan uh, cooperation on matters. So there is absolutely no difference between Republicans and Democrats with regards to big Pentagon budgets. And you know so i I didn't expect any 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 great change, and so far I have not been disappointed.
1: Dan, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, just continuing with the the threat inflation uh, theme uh, that we're on especially with China uh, one of the things that I've noticed uh, really being talked about a lot more uh, in just in the last six months is this uh, insistence that China is racing to parity with our nuclear arsenal and they're supposedly uh, aiming to quadruple it within the next decade or something like that and, and it seems like there's not really any real evidence to, to support any of those assertions. It, it seems like it's a sort of a worst case fantasy scenario that people are cooking up. Uh, is, is that, is that what you're seeing?
4: Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I, I, I've long thought that it's the reincarnation uh, a reincarnation of the 1960 missile gap argument. And uh, you know, it, and again that it, 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 it's a great talking point, at the time where we're talking about uh, the recapitalization of our nuclear enterprises, you know, we're talking about the new, you know, ground-based strategic deterrent and uh, we have the, um, the, uh, the new uh, Columbia class uh, uh, submarine program that's coming on board. You have the, you know, the B-21 program is, uh, is starting to ramp up. So there's uh you know no better way to to generate support and to generate the funding levels for those kind of programs than to have uh to have a new uh 21st century missile gap.
1: Absolutely. And uh and actually coming back around to the, the F-35 that Barbara brought up uh earlier, the F-35 program, uh we all know that this is famously a, a debacle of a program, just a, a disaster. Um uh, what, what do you think we should learn about uh the from the failures of this program and what can congress and the military do to prevent something like this from happening in the future or or is this built into the way that we do weapons procurement now
4: well, I, unfortunately, in, in many cases, this is kind of built into, uh, to the acquisition program or the acquisition system that we have in the United States. Uh, there are plenty of lessons that, that could and, and should be learned. And I've written about these pretty extensively. Uh, like first and foremost, the, the idea of having a joint program, having a one size fits all aircraft that can meet the operational needs of, not just three different services, but multiple countries, uh, in the case of the F-35, you know, that, uh, you know, that, that is a conceptual flaw with the program that was baked in from the very beginning. And that, that just added the, like massive layers of complexity, uh, to the development of the F-35, uh, program and the F-35s like aircraft that, simply could not be overcome and and we're seeing that now uh the the real manifestation of that is 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 really starting to dawn on people in Washington now, which is why you're starting to see a lot of criticism from you know, members of the House Armed Services Committee, people who for years were, you know, basically in lockstep support of the, of the program. And, and now that the, you know, particularly the operating costs of the, of the program and the long-term sustainment costs of the program are uh, are really starting to, to dawn on people. You're starting to see some of that, uh, you know, some of that supporter road. Uh, so that's, that's one of the, that that's probably the the single biggest lesson, and it and there's signs that that lesson has been learned uh, and will hopefully be applied properly. I mean, you had one of the program executive officers a couple years ago for the F thirty five program saying that having a joint program was a bad idea and that we're not going to do this again. Well, hopefully that is the case, and uh, you know we'll we'll see moving forward if if that is. And and honestly, this this could probably be like the best thing. That, that comes out of the F-35 program is all these painful lessons that have been learned along the way uh, that can hopefully be absorbed and, and used properly moving forward. We've seen this in the past. The F-111 program in the, the late 1950s, early 1960s was the F-35 of its day. It had the same conceptual flaw except for the international aspect of it. And, and it was a disaster. But from that, Painful experience. We got really good aircraft programs that endure to this day. I mean, like directly following the F thirty or the F one hundred and eleven program, we got the F fifteen, we got the F sixteen, we got the F eighteen, we got the A ten and and so moving forward you know we can we can keep our fingers crossed that uh, that we learn those lessons and and we get quality programs you know the follow-on programs uh but we're just gonna have to wait and see if that is in fact the case
2: what do you think
3: about the f-35s failures the program most irked the members of congress
4: well, it's the the long term sustainment costs, and uh, which is, I mean, that that is a very real issue. I mean, there's a huge gap between the planned fleet size and and the. Uh, the affordability standards for the for the program, and you know it's a, it's an issue that I've been warning about for a long time, and I'm I'm glad to see that people are really starting to, to take notice of it, and uh, but it's it's important for everybody to remember that this was not something that should have surprised anybody. Uh, you mean like the
3: billi- It was billions of dollars in overruns, right?
4: Right. Um, the right. Uh, yeah. The GAO they had a uh, they had a report a couple a couple weeks ago uh, that showed like a six billion dollar delta uh, between the the planned fleet size and, and what the services would be able to afford uh, over the years, which you know, pretty significant. And uh, but again, if we want to talk about lessons learned, it's important to remember that that these these high costs for sustainment are baked into the program. Uh, you know, it goes all the way back to the, you know, conceptual, um, you know, to, to the conceptual level, like back when the F-35 was nothing more than, than sketches on the back of a napkin. And the Pentagon decided that they were going to move forward with this uh you know total system performance responsibility, where the services were basically going to surrender their their responsibilities to support this program to the contractor, which Gave the contractor all kinds of incentives to uh, to increase complexity of the of the F thirty five in order to justify you know these these really lucrative sustained long term sustainment contracts for you know for this system you know we used to build weapons uh, you know back you know, decades ago that could easily be maintained by by the service, by service members. And, uh, you know, they were, these were, uh, you know, ships and planes and trucks that were designed by geniuses and, uh, you know, that could be, uh, operated by, by service members. And, And, and they were, and that's, that's the way it should be. Like all of these uh, you know, all of these weapons should be designed in such a way that they basically design the contractor out of them. And, you know, so a, you know, so an E3 with a wrench can uh, can do most of the, most of the maintenance on these things, which is just not the case with the F-35 there's only a certain level of maintenance that, that service members can perform. And, you know, beyond that, they the contractors have to take over or the, the aircraft has to be you know put in the depot status and uh, you know for those big contractor overhauls that are that are necessary in order to maintain it.
0: Is that deliberate? Damn. Oh
4: yeah, it's absolutely deliberate, wow. and you know, and it was uh, the the total system performance responsibility was uh, was a bit of a fad uh, in acquisition circles back late '90s, early 2000s. Uh, you know, the idea being that um, that private industry can can do these things more more effectively and efficiently than than the government can. Uh, I mean that you know that that's an idea that's true in in certain circumstances, but uh, you know in in the case of of weapons and maintaining weapons, it's it's not, and pretty much anybody that served in uniform, particularly around big machines, uh, has has seen this over the last over the last couple of years. We had General Dynamics contractors around uh, to to help us, uh, you know, maintain the tanks. And there were certain there were certain things that that my uh, my crew members and and my uh, my maintainers could do on the tanks, but beyond beyond that certain level, we'd have to send the tank off to, to you know to be rebuilt, or we'd have to have Components that you know we could we could pull off and 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 put on the tank, but we couldn't actually fix the components. Uh, so we had to have a field service representative, you know, fix those fix those kind of things.
0: I find that very appalling, but it seems to be part of a trend in which the Pentagon, the DoD, has become increasingly held hostage to uh, private contractors. I mean, I, I saw the worst of this uh, in covering uh, the war and the private contracting explosion during uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, in which the uh, the government had to continuously turn to uh, the, these big contractors like Halliburton and KBR, even though uh, they were found to be overcharging, committing uh, fraud and abuse. Uh, building ramshackle uh, barracks and showers for our uh, troops, uh, so on and so forth. And it seemed like the uh, explanation or the reply was always, well, we don't have anybody else to go to. And so we've outsourced all of these things. And without them, we can't function. And now it sounds like that's that that includes our weapon systems as well
4: yeah absolutely and if you ever saw one of those big one of those big military bases and i experienced a couple of them uh, you, you saw it there were you know places like uh, you know camp fallujah where i was in 2007 was was huge and sprawling and there were contractors everywhere and you know the the services the army and the marine corps in particular took some took some flack and some criticism about you know hunkering down on on some of these big bases but when we had contractors there, we had to have big bases because we had to protect the contractors. And, you know, so this, this idea and this mentality affects the way we actually operate. And, you know, it, it drastically increases our, our logistics tail and, and it makes the, makes the services a lot less nimble than they should be in order to, to fight and win wars effectively. And, you know, so it, it's, it's an issue that, that, Unfortunately, I don't think deserve you know gets as much credit as it deserves, and uh, and unless we fix this, you know we're we're going to be set up for failure in the in the future.
3: Would you agree, though? Because I know some contractors say that Congress is the one at fault here, because Congress has mandated that they have to. Be the one a lot of these contracts are very specific. Contractors are the ones who have a lot of this, like Kelly just said. It's a private contractor that has to be the there's a specific widget and it has to go to a specific company and it has to go all the way back. So they've almost legislated a problem into the law, and it's not. I mean, this is a multifaceted problem, but is there some validity to the criticism that? it's congress's fault and not the contractors' fault or is it the contractors' fault
4: no it, it's uh, you know that's why we talk about the military industrial congressional complex so it takes the cooperation of all of those elements in order to uh, have these uh, you know, to have these issues uh, manifest themselves in in reality uh, yeah, so Congress definitely bears some responsibility on this, as well as the services for uh, know, going along with it, for not objecting to it uh, as much as they as much as they should. Uh, and yeah, certainly Congress for mandating these things and for for appropriating the funds to pay for it.
0: Well, thank you, Dan. I, we've run out of time, but it's really great to talk with you and uh, to get all of these insights as they're so important right now, given that we're going to be, uh, well, Congress is going to be working on a budget and uh, we're constantly hearing about this run up to uh, possible potential war with China and how the, mili- the military industrial complex plays into that run up and, and, and threat inflation. So thank you for coming on and Breaking down some of that stuff for us. Oh, it was
4: my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack. At crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.